Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm McKenna Mezzestrano, and today I will be interviewing Sina Kahin about his new book, Ideas. The first installment in the series treats the biblical book of Genesis, or Bereshit, and was published in 2020. And the second volume treats the book of Exodus, or Shemot, and was published in 2021. Sina graduated as a biomedical scientist and has an MBA from Imperial College Business School in London. He currently works in the medical device and AI industries with experience spanning sales, design, and innovation. In his part-time work, he gives keynotes, runs workshops, and has worked as a consultant for several organizations, including Google, BBC, O2, and Novature Ventures. He is also the co-founder of an online platform of learning called the Chabura, where students around the world learn about Jewish law, thought, history, and more. But today, we are going to talk to Sina about yet another one of his part-time passions as a writer. Thank you for joining us, Sina. It's really a pleasure to have you here with us today. It's my honor to be here with you. Thanks, McKenna. So I have a feeling that A lot of people, just after that brief intro, are probably wondering how a person whose full-time work is in the tech industry comes to write two books on the Bible. So I wonder if we can just start by having you tell us a little bit more about your background as it relates to this area of your scholarship. My wife wonders that as well. She always always questions how it is that I have the time to do all of this. Um, First of all, thank you so much for having me. Really honored to be part of the program. Um, I guess... My journey as a Sephardic Jew um, led me to where I am now wanting to publish and write books, even though I'm able to have my hands in so many different types of worldly things, whether it's in AI, medtech, etc. And what I mean by that is that one of the hallmarks, if you like, of uh, Sephardi Jewry was that a member of the community would be integrated in society, but still take their Torah seriously and their covenant with God, seriously. Um, so how I led to actually writing a book, I guess I have to be honest and say that I was influenced a lot by my father, him being an author of over 15 books, and him reading books all the time, um, leading to many a fight in the house between my mother and father about him spending his time in the books all the time. Uh, and uh, the, the impetus, if you like, of this particular series was in studying Jewish history. I stepped back from the localized uh, environment and wanted to hear more and learn more about how we got to where we are today as Jews. Uh, You could start all the way back to Abraham Avinu, but I decided to look at when we left Babel and post Geonic tradition, where was it that the Jews ended up? Because at the end of the day, today's manifestation of Jewry is very much rooted in that medieval past. And it was then when I started to look into the origins of my own tradition, the Sephardi tradition, and noticed that uh, over 80% of world Jewry in medieval times, post-exile from Babel, um, were Sephardi. They were situated in Spain. And of course, we had our brothers and sisters of Ashkenaz situated in the Franco-German Rhineland. Um, and I wanted to see what, what, was, what was the world like uh, locally, uh, for those Jews? What was it like in Sepharad, in Spain? What was it like in Ashkenaz? How did they deal with the challenges of their time? How did they deal with the knowledge of their time? What was the milieu, the cultural milieu in which they were not just surviving in, but thriving in? And I noticed that in the Sepharadi tradition, which to me at that stage was reduced merely down to food, uh, some music, maybe a few interesting jokes and funny uncles, uh, there's a very rich intellectual heritage. There's a very rich worldly heritage. 
and I noticed that this Sephardi approach to Torah and the world around it uh, was very much rooted in the Geonic approach, uh, having studied a little bit about how the Geonim in Bavel had been, uh, you know, kind of living in that environment, the kind of knowledge bases that they were absorbing in their work, having written things in Arabic themselves, I noticed that the kind of the, the descendants, if you like, of that Geonic approach seemed to be in Sepharad in Spain. But one main element of this Sephardi past that I noticed was so prevalent in not only the works of the Hachamim, such as the Rif, Rambam, Yehuda Halevi, uh, Ibn Ezra, this element was their ability to, in, in Talmudic terms, enjoy the meat and discard the shell. In other words, their ability to use Torah as a lens through which they can interact with the world around them and filter through what are the elements of the world around us that we can bring in and incorporate in our life and incorporate in our understanding of Torah and reality? And what are the toxins within those elements that we can filter out and remove? And this really impacted me because it made me realize that the Judaism that we see today has very much gone away from this tradition. And I, I, uh, it, it was a bit of a red pill moment, at lack of a better term, because I saw these hachamim spending so much time trying to uh, really uh, elucidate what is true to the best that they can approximate truth. And they were willing to go to great lengths. And this was obviously in stark contrast to our Ashkenazi brothers and sisters who were not able to do that at the time, given the fact that they didn't have access to the texts that were prevalent at the time with regards to science, philosophy, etc., and the language of Arabic, which was the, you know, the, the, the language in which a lot of these books of worldly knowledge were written in. And I thought, okay, this is, this is interesting. So I have this tradition where these hachamim would look into the knowledge bases around their time, and they were able to bring them and use these different terms and knowledges, um, if there's such a term, and uh, kind of uplift Torah values by borrowing these contemporary forms of knowledge. How would I do this today? How can I do this today? Uh, in any small feat, obviously, I, I, I wouldn't be a fingernail of those hachamim, but how can I try and do my bit in achieving this? And that was the main impetus um, uh, of, of really trying to bring in contemporary forms of knowledge, contemporary understandings of reality, and tethering them or using them as vehicles to explain timeless, eternal Torah ideas, specifically here uh, on the parasha. Got it. Yeah. Um, I want to actually just kind of tease out two of the things that you just said to make sure that anyone listening, I think that what we're about to get into is really important to understanding the context of this. Um, I am also Sephardic. And I, you know, have grown up attending mostly um, Jewish schools that are dominated by Ashkenazi thought today. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about just kind of that milieu that we're living in right now and kind of why that in and of itself makes work like what you're doing so important. Yeah, that's a, it's a very important question. Very, very important question. And I think it's a very important uh, area um, uh, that a lot of people actually, not only do they not know about, um, uh, but I think it really, really dictates a lot of what's, what's happening with us today. So historically speaking, as I said, the majority uh, of Jewish history, Professor Zvi Zohar uh, says 80% of Jewish history, and we see that from, from the numbers of, you know, when we split the population between Sephardi and Ashkenazim throughout Jewish history, uh, have been Sephardi. So the thought and worldview, if you like, of Judaism for 80% of its history was Sephardi. What does this mean? It means their approach to God, their approach to mitzvot, approach to berit, covenant, approach to reality, approach to the outside world, approach to the land of Israel. It was predominantly Sephardi. Is there one form of Sephardi? No, but there is a spectrum. There is one side integrationist, other side isolationist. And for the vast majority of Jewish history, the Sephardi integrationist approach was the majority. 
as we know, the golden age of Judaism, uh, which was in Sepharad during medieval times, um, this integrationist perspective was the strongest. It was when it was the most dominant. However, after the expulsion, uh, many things occurred to Sepharadi Jewry. Um, we went from thrive mode, if you like, of Golden Age Spain, where we had you know, relatively more freedom than our Christian, uh, our, our Ashkenazi brothers and sisters living in Christian lands. Um, we went from thrive mode into survive mode. And when any individual goes from thrive mode into survive mode, you tend to not have the time and headspace to learn about the world around you, integrate and take those risks. And we know from academia, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. When you are struggling to get food on the table or you have survival issues, you don't have time to self-actualize. It's only after you've met the basic needs of yourself as a human, then you can actually get to those stages where you can learn about different things and actually thrive, if you like. Mm -hmm. I think so, Rambam Sephardi, even talks about that in, in Moran Nebuchim, in Guide for the Perplexed, I believe. He says that, you know, it, it's too much to expect somebody to be able to philosophize or, you know, indeed. think about the world and think about bigger ideas if they don't have a roof over their head and food on the table and just basic needs taken care of. That's the perfect Nakor, the perfect source for that idea is absolutely right. Um, Rambam essentially, uh, you know, thinking up Maslow's hierarchy of needs before it had a term for it. Exactly. Um, so it, it, and it really is, it really does take effort. So this kind of thrive mode of Judaism went into survive mode. And as I said, Ashkenazi brothers and sisters were in survive mode for most of their history. Um, and having lost that thrive mode um, status and moving into survive mode status, we were dispersed around uh, into different countries, went into the Middle East, etc. Uh, and we still had elements within our Middle Eastern journeys uh, and the Western Sephardim with Spain and Portugal post-expulsion where this integrationist thread was prominent. However, I think the, 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 the major watershed moment was at the foundation of the State of Israel when the Medina was founded um, by then most of the educational institutions and most of the uh, local elements of day-to-day -day Jewish life were Ashkenazi and what that led to was people coming in from around the world especially from Arab lands where they were being persecuted people as in Sepharadim they arrive in Israel in a survive mode state mm -hmm. what do they do do they pick a fight and say, we're going to build our own yeshivot and our own schools, uh, reflecting our integrationist history? Or do we, are we in survive mode? We just want our kids to, to keep kosher and Shabbat and have a Jewish okay. education. So we send them to what's available. And one thing that, one thing, one of many things that our Ashkenazi brothers and sisters are fantastic at is uh, organizational skills and the organizational skills producing all of these fantastic yeshivot and fantastic um, uh, educational institutions. Uh, allowed for Sepharadim to maybe not maintain their approach, but at least live a, f a form of Jewish life. Um, but what, what's happened since then is that most of world Jewry is very much a derivative of that medieval Ashkenazi approach to Judaism. And we still haven't defined the medieval Ashkenazi approach to Judaism, um, but uh, it was in the words of, for example, Rabbi David Berger uh, of YU, it was a primitive, uh, culturally unproductive environment, uh, not as a result of the Ashkenazim, as a result of the Christians that they were living amongst. Mm -hmm. And that environment led to this isolationist approach, again, not out of their own choice, but out of the circumstance. And we see today very much that approach dominating the yeshiva systems where Torah education is limited to uh, uh, commentaries on the Talmud as well as Talmud study, uh, forgetting the rich Sephardi history of integrating all forms of worldly knowledge into Torah study. As Hacham Ben Sion Uziel, the first chief rabbi of Israel said, uh, the first Sephardi chief rabbi of Israel said, the Talmud Torah is a general term. It's a general term that covers all wisdoms, 
all sciences, all forms of knowledge uh, that, that essentially elucidates Torah for us. That's the Faradi approach. Um, it's few and far between do we find Hachamim today that represent it. However, we are seeing more and more. And uh, just to get a taste of what it means as a Faradi to live in uh, an environment, a Jewish world where the mainstream today were less than 8% of the total Jewish population at the beginning of the medieval period. So mm-hmm. to think how 8% led to now being over 90%, uh, it's food for thought. Uh, a lot mm-hmm. of people think today that when they go into a yeshiva or they go into an, uh, an educational institution run by Ashkenazi brothers and sisters, this is how Moshe Rabbeinu <laughs> was dealing with things. But they forget that this was very much 8% of world Jewry at the beginning of the medieval period. So um, it's, it's interesting being a Sephardi uh, and being aware, or being even Ashkenazi and being aware of that historical reality. Definitely. And I think going back to another thing that you said, I think that that's often what's so frustrating about the way that Sephardic culture is often presented today with, like you said, this overemphasis on food or almost like tokenizing aspects of Sephardic culture that maybe are, you know, appear exotic or just convenient, but not getting into, to use another one of your terms, getting into the meat of it. Um, Why do you think that that is kind of the direction that things have gone in? Mm -hmm. I think it's it's also uh, the outside circumstances with regards to the evolution of Islam and the evolution of Christianity. In medieval times, uh, Islam was... Uh, much more integrationist, if you like, or intellectually stimulating um, en masse relative to the Christians. Whereas post-expulsion, uh, we have seen that uh, it's, it's the Western world, it's the Christian world that has been more intellectually stimulating and has been uh, kind of, if you like, advancing um, a lot of the things that we see, whether it's science, etc., uh, in our world. And the Muslim uh, populations we were living amongst um, weren't as intellectually stimulating as their golden age. You know, I have, you know, Islamic history also attests to having uh, a golden age, just like Jewish, uh, just like Judaism does. So, what do I mean by that? I mean that what's happened is is that when the Jews of Sephardi lands, that by Sephardi lands, I'm defining it as living amongst Muslims, mm-hmm. um, we somehow became a product of the environment in that since our environment, you know, we're always in a competition with our environment. So Rabbi David Berger puts it as well. Again, I quote him in his fantastic book on reject on uh, uh, Judaism and other cultures. He says, we're very much products of our environment and we are in competition with our environment. The competition in medieval Sepharad was intellectual. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the Muslim uh, community we were living amongst were very intellectually uh, um, advanced and they saw that as being a way of gaining knowledge of their god so we had to compete so we were also very intellectually involved as a way of getting to know Hakadosh Baruch Hu, god the, the 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 cultural competition or the religious competition in medieval ashkenaz in christian uh, environment was piety was mm-hmm. suffering was how much you restrict yourself to show commitment to god so understandably, naturally, the Ashkenazi way of competing was to have a competition of piety and restriction and suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Post-expulsion, we see the opposite. We see Christianity kind of during the Enlightenment, etc., in the Western world, um, kind of abandoning the shackles of superstitious forms of religion and becoming intellectually enlightened. Whereas in the Muslim lands where the Enlightenment didn't really impact, um, the tables turned, the, 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 the cultural or religious competition wasn't intellectual. It was more just about co- co- you know, committing to the day-to-day rituals and obligations of being a religious person. And when you strip away the intellectual core, you tend to take refuge in the sugar and the fat around that skeleton, which is food, music, mm-hmm. uh, and all those things which are necessary. Fat is very important. You know, we, we need fat. We are not just bone. We need uh, we need the fat to help us, um, you know, provide energy to our body, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we are not just a skeleton. 
However, I think the skeleton was missing in uh, post-expulsion. In many instances, not, you know, we're talking broad strokes here. Whereas in Christian lands, especially after the Enlightenment occurred, um, we see much more intellectual stimulation, intellectual rigor. And as a result, we don't see as many Sephardi uh, works that really represent the intellectual heritage uh, of uh, Judaism compared to Ashkenazi ones. Did they exist? Yes. But we also have to remember that they weren't published or they were written in languages that weren't accessible to the layperson, mm -hmm. uh, which is why uh, now we're seeing more and more Sephardi works. You know, I had a friend of mine, I'll be very honest with you, Ashkenazi friend of mine who was um, criticizing this new uh, reclaiming of the Geonic Sephardi approach. He said, what's, what's come out of Sephardad over the last 500 years? Mm. What, have, what have you guys produced intellectually over the last 500 years? Uh, that's something he said that stuck to me. Mm -hmm. We've produced so much, but so much of it was written in Arabic or the printing presses weren't around where we were, or they were um, left when we had to escape the lands of our uh, you know, uh, co-religionists mm -hmm. in the Muslim lands. And so many of these books have been left behind, but uh, thankfully, uh, thanks to academia uh, and many institutions, they are coming to light and we are producing or republishing many of them. Um, but I think the shift of Christianity and Islam from intellectualism to piety, um, or the ritualistic elements, solely the ritualistic elements, played a big role in Sephardi approach to Torah or Judaism being reduced down to uh, the, the kind of the, the fat that we associate with music and um, so food. I didn't plan on asking you about this but I just I can't even help but wonder um, how do you think that Shabbatai Tzavi contributed to this phenomenon that you're talking about and just for people who might not know this Shabbatai Tzavi was um, a false messiah essentially he claimed to be the messiah and he was very active in um, Ottoman Sephardic cities, um, especially Salonika and Izmir, both of which had massive Sephardic populations. Um, and he ultimately uh, converted to Islam. So how do you think that that period of Jewish history influenced what you're talking about, if at all? Yeah, I think that's, again, a very, very, very important question. And I, I'd like to quote one of the Hachamim who really represented this Geonik um, Andalusian or Sephardi approach, Hacham Yosef Faur Alavashalom, who passed away um, around this, it's Arayat, it's around this, uh, this month last year, last month last year, so just over 12 months ago. He has a fantastic essay called Two Models of Jewish Spirituality. And in that essay, he actually, he, 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 he tries to find the root of the Shabtai Svi problem. And he finds it in exactly this distinction between medieval Sephardi and medieval Ashkenaz. What do I mean? Medieval Sephardi was... Uh, essentially saw science, philosophy, uh, and, and these forms of knowledge as being a gain, uh, opportunity to gain that or knowledge of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, of God. Our Ashkenazi co-religionists, co you know, uh, um, our brothers and sisters, they saw um, a form of mysticism called Kabbalah, which is not rabbinic mysticism, but it's, 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 a, it's a form of mysticism that was developed in 13th century. Um, Ashkenaz came into Spain, in, in northern Spain, which was Christian, just like Ashkenaz was. And Hacham Faul concludes after this analysis of medieval Sephardi and medieval Ashkenaz that the approach of this Kabbalistic form of mysticism produced a, an environment that allowed the Shabtai Svi to develop. Mm. Because it was uh, the Shabtai Svi phenomenon essentially is further beyond the law. Mm -hmm. And using mysticism, which is a subjective experience, it's a subjective reality, using it as an objective um, a tool uh, to convince and persuade. The moment you use a subjective mystical experience to persuade others, um, this is where we get into the realms of uh, a Shabtai Svi. Mm -hmm. And the Shabtai Svi phenomenon, uh, the way that it impacted Judaism today, uh, I would say it hasn't impacted it to the extent that it should in that the, 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 the subjective mystical fervor of Shabtai Svi is still occurring in many circles, mm -hmm. in many corners of Judaism today. And we are seeing 
manifestations, not of Shabtai Svi, but of that ideology lurking in many of the rituals and thought processes of our brothers and sisters. And I think because, I'm guessing it's because they don't understand what the root of the Shabtai Svi problem was. We just, you know, we just taught of Shabtai Svi as being this false messiah. We don't actually understand where, where did his ideas come from? Where was he rooted in mm-hmm. that led to him? And why was he being accepted to that extent? Because remember, hook, line, and sinker, the vast majority of, of the Jewish world uh, had essentially fallen for Shabtai Tzvi. Mm-hmm. Um, who didn't? People, people tend to forget who was one of the main proponents against Shabtai Tzvi. And we see that it was somebody that was rooted in this medieval Sephardi, Gaonic Sephardi approach. Hacham Yaakov Sasportas, who was the senior Sephardi rabbi of the United Kingdom, a position that's taken up today by my personal teacher, uh, Rabbi Joseph Dweck. Um, And he being rooted, not in the, even himself being involved in certain forms of mysticism, he, he was able to delineate between subjective mysticism and objective mysticism, the latter with which Shabtai Sfi was meddling in. And was a strong proponent against um, uh, Shabtai Tzvi. So people should really look into the history of what led the Shabtai Tzvi movement to take hold like it did and try to find the elements of that same um, his, same story, uh, how it manifests today to prevent these kinds of things occurring again. Um, but I, do, I don't think the Shabtai Tzvi incident impacted, impacted Judaism the way it should. The only positive impact I see personally is that the community that I uh, uh, am associated with, the Spanish and Portuguese community here in the United Kingdom, uh, we have very little of subjective Kabbalistic mysticism in our practice and in our thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when Shabtai Tzvi came and did what he did, Hacham uh, Sasportaz was very strict in limiting Kabbalistic knowledge uh, and Kabbalistic education in the Spanish and Portuguese community here in the United Kingdom. Um, uh, and, and I think uh, we're seeing today that the Spanish and Portuguese in the United Kingdom and abroad, uh, if, if you see their prayer service as well as their machshaba, their Jewish thought, it is as close to uh, uh, Talmudic Judaism, if you like, um, uh, as anything else is. So uh, Shabtai Svi had, had an impact, but I don't think it had the impact that I would like to see, which is to try and purge the, the, the negative mystical ideas that pervade much of mainstream Judaism today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So something that I want to get into now um, is who are you hoping will read your books? Because I guess what I want to make sure people know is that if you look through this, these books, it is not only Sephardic Chachamim or Sephardic thinkers who are quoted. You quote a wide range. I mean, listening to you talk right now, I hope people can be aware of the fact that you're quoting a wide range of voices. So who are these books for? And who are you hoping will read them? And what do you want them to how do you want them to utilize your books? Yeah, Uh, I would say, uh, even stepping back from uh, the the book as being um, in and of itself, just the book, what I mean by that is, we have to just ask ourselves, what does it mean when we say that we are in Berit, when we are in covenant with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, with God? Do we see God as the ultimate reality? If we do see God as the ultimate reality, then we have to come to the understanding that the author of the Torah and the author of the world are the same. If we understand that the author of the Torah and the author of the world are the same, then the, the, the forms of knowledge that exist out there produced by the human brain, which is arguably one of God's greatest creations, how can those forms of knowledge be utilized in improving, developing, igniting, enhancing our berit, our covenant with God? So it's, it's a paradigm shift that I'm, I, I'm, I'm trying to um, kind of promote here in the understanding of different forms of knowledge incorporated in Torah study. Um, why do I see it as a paradigm shift? Because I think there have been many approaches in trying to bring worldly knowledge and Torah study together as though they are compartmentalized and two separate entities. But this compartmentalization of knowledge, it represents very much a polytheistic view of reality 
in that we have different gods for different things and we have different topics and different times for different studies. Whereas I argue that, you know, that the approach of our hachamim has been that the Torah is the lens through which we see the world and we read this form of these different forms of knowledge. And seeing that all of these different forms of knowledge are the effects of the ultimate cause, which is God. Now, how is this related to my book and to your question? Everyone is wondering. <laughs> the way that it's connected is because if we come with that premise of understanding that everything that we read and everything that we see around us ultimately has elements of truth and we see interchangeably God and truth emet being used um, you know, kind of God is truth, truth is God, the Torah of Moshe is truth. If we understand that truth is something we want to achieve or understanding it as to the best that we can as humans with our meat brains, we need to try and see God in a way or the, 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 the expression of God in all these different forms of knowledge. And this is what I've tried to do with the book. Um, I've tried to a kind of shift the mind of the reader and stop seeing a quote from Shakespeare or a quote from Yuval Noah Harari or a quote from uh, Daniel Kahneman mm-hmm. uh, as being something that, you know, is, is, is completely and utterly divorced from uh, our relationship with God. No, if they are dealing with facts, not with values, because there's a distinction, but if they're dealing with facts, Gravity does not belong to Newton. Gravity belongs to God. Mm. It belongs, you know, it, it, it's, it's a reality. So it goes back to Harambam in the introduction to um, uh, the Mishnah, where he writes that we must accept the truth regardless of the source. And specifically, I use a quote from one of our Hachamim, Hacham Yaakov Anatoli, um, medieval times he was married to the uh, i believe it's the daughter-in-law of ibn tibon one of the famous translators of harambam's works so we're talking about 13th century 12th 13th century he wrote in his marmad hatalmidim which was essentially the covenant and conversation of medieval times it was the rabbi Isaac's, uh you know weekly parasha um, uh, uh, sheet of the time and he, he wrote that to grasp as much of the truth as is humanly possible man must lay the whole realm of knowledge under honor under honor in gathering this knowledge, he must be willing to learn from all, whether they be of high or low status, whether they be members of his own faith or belong to other faiths, whether they be believers or infidels. In the providence of learning, as in the field of practical everyday living, we should break the nut open, enjoy the meat, and discard the shell. So if you to tell me one objective that my book has is to kind of imbue this mentality and approach to my Jewish brothers and sisters, where they don't need to see this Torah umada as if they're two completely separate entities and we have to try and bridge the gaps between them. But seeing everything around us, all forms of knowledge as vehicles of gaining the, the, the or of achieving the one objective that is the objective of all, which is gaining da'at of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, gaining knowledge of existence of God. So that's what I try to do in every essay that I've written on every parasha is to bring sources from all forms, from members of my faith, other faith, believers, infidels, those of high or low status. And I've really tried to embody this uh, quote from Hachab Yaakov Anatoly, which is why I put it at the front, um, just to show people how holistic the conception of Jewish monotheism is. Monotheism does not hold, Hebrew monotheism does not hold that there is this one God, um, uh, you know, and there's a, there's a plethora of other realities or plethora of uh, other things going on. No, it is a holistic conception um, shattering the polytheistic view of reality that sees things as you know, in discrete categories. No, we, everything has a framework. Everything is connected and coherent. It is our job to see how um, we can connect those dots. Uh, but ultimately, that oneness um, uh, is, is, is something that I try to promote in the book through trying to bring in all forms of knowledge uh, and, and sharing Torah ideas by doing so. And really, I mean, that's what is I mean, that's just one thing that makes this book or these books rather um, special and different is that there are you begin to see a cohesion of ideas across um 
religions, across time, across place. And I think that that is a very compelling way to get to the truth of something is that if there is consistency in an idea, um, again, like across these divisions, then we should be compelled to to really consider it and take it very seriously. I am just baffled by the process that you must have gone through to compile all these sources. And I guess I want to know more about how you did that. I mean, how did you pick and choose all these various nuggets? What was, yeah, I guess, what was the, what was the process of writing these books? I think the, 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 the process began when a certain rabbi arrived in the United Kingdom around seven years ago to become the chief Sephardi rabbi of the United Kingdom. Uh, that is Rabbi Joseph Dweck. Um, having started to learn with him, I realized that we have a lot of data points out there in Jewish education where we're taught content, a lot of content. We've got content for days. We have this book and that book, this shiur and this hacham and this rabbi, etc., etc., full of content. But what we lack is framework and what we lack is context. And when Rabbi Dweck arrived, he was able to provide the community here in the United Kingdom with framework and with context so that we would then be able to analyze anything in our lives, any form of knowledge, and see how it fits into the framework of Israel, into the context of Torah. So having started learning with him about seven years ago, that framework and context um, was holding strong and it was being built in my mind. So this led me to start making notes in any book that I read, which in the past I would not have necessarily associated as being uh, part of Jewish uh, you know, or Torah learning. So whether I was reading a book by Daniel Kahneman or whether I was reading a book, as I mentioned, Yuval Harari, as I, or if I'm reading a book by... Uh, Shakespeare or whoever I'm reading a book, whoever's written a book that I'm reading their, their work from, what are the ideas being expressed here? What are the principles? This little comment that's made here, does this fit within the context or framework of Israel and Torah? If it did, I took one of these colored um, stickies, I don't know what you call them, the post-it things that my kids love to take and put all over the wall. And I started making notes of these different ideas and all these different books that I felt was fitting into this framework and context of Torah that my Rabbi, Rabbi Dweck, um, had, uh, you know, kind of passed on to me. And after a while, I had a bookshelf of all these books with all these different colored notes, uh, sticky notes, uh, so that one day when I'm able to sit down and actually write uh, 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 an idea on the parasha, I can bring in this wealth of knowledge produced by all these different uh, thinkers around the world from all these different fields to paint a coherent picture. So the Torah is presenting one, or I will be trying to, I, I try and present one of 70 different uh, presentations of Torah in one of my essays. And I will go and fit all these different ideas that I've come across that are consistent with this Torah idea. So it's the Torah idea first and then bringing in the other forms of knowledge uh, uh, to kind of back that Torah idea up, which I think is one of the distinctions with academic approaches to Torah, where it starts from other forms of knowledge, and then it, it brings that into the realm of Torah. Whereas we know from our hachamim that we must first have our stomachs filled with meat and bread, in the words of Harambam, he is posek l'alacha in the Mishneh Torah, he adjudicates the law, that we must have, you know, halakha, um, essentially having the the, the 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 principles, if you like, of Torah in our tummy before we are able to uh, uh, go and learn other things. So starting from the place of, okay, this is the framework of Torah, this is what it means to be a Hebrew, I am going to then go and find these other forms of knowledge and, and trying to integrate them in. And that's what I did, um, connecting them all together, uh, it was a lockdown project. I began just at the beginning of lockdown. And in a few months, I was able to put down uh, a Bereshit. And then a few months later, after Bereshit was thankfully uh, very successful, uh, I was able to then work on Shemot. And I've now been given an ultimatum by my wife that if I continue to the next affair, she's most likely going to leave me and leave the kids. So there's, it's, it's just a lose-lose. 
So um, um, we'll, we'll see when that happens. So, well, I was actually going to ask you towards the end if you were planning on writing another one about Vaikra, but we'll, well, there's we'll your get there. <laughs> we'll um, I am wondering also about the title um, of these books, <laughs> Ideas, because it's such a, it's such a, there's so much contained in that word. And I mm. think it's very fundamental. And I think that really gets at everything you're trying to do. You're trying to get to the core and get down, you know, really back down to like, what are the basic tenets of what we're doing here? So can you talk a little bit about why you decided to call this ideas? Yes. So I think uh, uh, fundamentally ideas are the precursors to action. Hacham Yosef Kafa, who is one of the giants of Jewry, uh, specifically, you know, in, in, uh, it's very special in Yemenite Jewry, but obviously has impacted so much of um, uh, world Jewry in, in, in the way that he translated a lot of the important Jewish works and republished them, et cetera, et cetera. He wrote beautifully that when an idea is born in the world, it doesn't remain unfulfilled. It travels through space until it finds an incubator in which to develop. It then grows skin and muscle and becomes a reality. And what we see, the ideas, something that is abstract, ends up impacting physical reality. Much of the development in human civilization started as an idea. And what, what I tried to do was take the ideas that impacted my practical reality, the ideas that came from the hachamim, as I said, that don't necessarily get as much prominence and, 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 and TV time, if you like, mm-hmm. as many other hachamim do today. And I have a list of those hachamim in the introduction. Take their ideas that impacted my practical reality, present those abstract ideas in, this, in the form of a book, and then hope that it will positively and beneficially impact the practical realities of the readers. And I must say, it's, I always say, you know, this is not, I, I should not be getting any thanks for the book because these are the ideas of the achamim that I look up to. I'm just the facilitator and the amalgamator of these uh, ideas. But I must tell you, it's such a, it's very, very moving when I receive emails from around the world mm-hmm. of people who, uh, from all different stripes of Judaism and, and different ages, male, female, and they've said that these ideas have impacted them. Because at the end of the day, an idea is not enough. Um, you, 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 we need practical application. And, and, and seeing that these ideas are actually impacting people in a positive way, um, it's, it's very moving. It's very beautiful. And I'm very happy that I'm able to just be a messenger of the ideas that I've received from people far greater than me. Uh, and I, 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 I really want those who read the book to realize that they can do the same thing because I'm not, you know, I'm not an author in that sense. I will, I don't have any history to be able to do these things. It just comes from a place of wanting to share ideas. Um, so uh, that's why I called it ideas because uh, at the end of the day, uh, they're the precursor to much of what we do. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, I can't imagine anything more rewarding than, <laughs> you know, devoting all of this time and energy to writing these books. And like you said, getting that kind of reception from people, that is amazing. That's really, that's, a, that's powerful. Um, you mentioned a number of Chachamim, who you quote in your books, that don't receive, we'll say, a lot of airtime. Um, can you maybe give us a little insight into maybe one of those Chachamim who you think people might not know so much about and just tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, I mean, what I think would be a good exercise is for the the listeners to hear some of the names that I'm going to mention and just step back and think, how many of these do I know? Mm-hmm. And once they do that, they re- they can realize that these people were, were giants of Judaism. They, they were giants, but... Uh, as I said, today's educational, Jewish educational system very much represents or is a derivative of a medieval Ashkenazi approach. So a lot of these hachamim weren't being taught in that medieval Ashkenazi setting uh, and since then in Ashkenazi institutions. And therefore, that's why they haven't come across these names, even though these names are of hachamim who represented uh, at, at many stages of Jewish history the mainstream of Judaism. 
So we look at, of course, everybody knows Harambam, Meiri, Radak, Rabbeinu Bahia, Ramchal, Rivash, Ralbag, Rimigash, Ibn Ezra, Nisim Gerondi, Choter ben Shalomo, Yaakov Anatoli, Ibn Kaspi, Nisim ben Moshe, Ibn Tibon, Yitzchak Tayan, Zachariah ben Rofe, Eliad el Medigo, Ben Sion Ziel, David Nieto, Israel Moshe Hazan, Yosef Kafah, Yosef Faur, and of course, uh, my Rabbi, Rabbi Joseph Dweck. Now, uh, I would say, if I was to pick one hacham, just 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 for you know, just as an example, who not many people know about, but who, without a shadow of a doubt, has represented the Sephardi way of thinking, the Geonic Sephardi way of thinking, more so than any other hacham uh, since the days of Al Andalus. Uh, I would pick Hacham Yosef Faur. Hacham Yosef Faur, as I mentioned earlier, Rav Shalom, he passed away last year. And here we're talking about a Hacham that represented the model Hacham of days gone by. He was a Dayan twice over. He received Samyacha from giants. Uh, one Hacham Matlubabadi and, uh, and, uh, and another who was the Av Bettin of Yerushalayim. But not only that, as I said, he represents the Hachamim of days gone by, of Od Safarad. He was a lawyer. He was a professor. He wrote books on philosophy. He wrote books on language. He wrote works on Jewish literature. He wrote works on Jewish law. And here we have a Hacham, who has written so much, who has represented what was the mainstream uh, in medieval times. Hardly anybody knows of him. Hardly anybody knows of his works. Um, and they're written in English, actually. And they're written in English. Exactly, exactly. Wrote, I can't even tell you how many essays he's written for leading, leading journals. But you would not come across his name in, 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 in most institutions, educational institutions. He was and a professor at um, Jewish Theological Seminary, right? Indeed. So it's a very interesting story. So um, at, at the early days of the conservative movement, um, the, the, when the JTS was, was essentially founded, um, he wanted to teach Talmud there. He got an opportunity to teach Talmud there. Uh, now, amongst the Faradim, we don't have orthodox, conservative, reform. We have, mm-hmm. are you halakhically practicing or not? Uh, if you're not, you're still part of Berit, you're still part of the the, uh, the community, but we don't have these different divisions. Um, uh, so these these terms, orthodox, modern orthodox, reform, conservative, they, they don't really fit in the Sephardi worldview. Um, nevertheless, there may, there may have been some halakhic uh, um, issues associated with the conservative, conservative movement. So Hacham Fa'ur wanted to, was able to teach Talmud there, but he first wanted to get permission from the two leading Sephardi hachamim, two of the biggest hachamim in general uh, in America at the time, Hacham de Solapul, who was the head of the Spanish and Portuguese community there, and Hacham Matlub Abadi, who was head of the Syrian community and, and the main Sephardi posek of the time. And he got permission to teach Talmud in JTS, which was a, you know, a conservative institution. Um, he then left when they were um, ordaining uh, female rabbis. There's a whole controversy in and of itself. Um, but uh, he, he kind of represented that old Sephardat approach of teaching where he could, mm-hmm. being, a, being a scientist in a way, being a philosopher, being a lawyer, being this, being that, and being a Talmud Hacham in all things Torah. And we're seeing a huge swathe of young Sephardi and Ashkenazi people and old learning more about Hacham Faur. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, the kind of work we're doing with our online educational platform, the Chabura, uh, we, we are trying to uh, uphold not just Hacham Faur's, but Hacham Ben Ziel, as I mentioned, Hacham Nieto, Hacham Israel Moshe Hazan, all of these different Hachamim who were, were the chief rabbis of, of Sephardi lands or they were chief rabbis of cities, or they were just prolific writers and thinkers who represented that integrationist approach, which I think is so sorely needed in Judaism today. Mm-hmm. Not because of nostalgia, not because 
it's just nice to reconnect and have a revitalization of an old Masora. But because it's reality driven, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it sees the author of the Torah and the author of the world as the same. That's the reality. And if we want to accept the realities outside as being part of the development of the world, we have to have a framework of Torah that is consistent with that mentality. And it so happens to be that the approach of our hachamim um, fits into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, we appreciate and we love all the different approaches within Am Yisrael. Um, but in, in the kind of world we live in today, where one cannot ignore scientific realities, we need to look at frameworks of Torah that are in tune with and not in conflict with or ignoring scientific realities, just as our greatest hachamim did. Um, we even have hachamim who very clearly state that any pasuk, any verse in the Torah that contradicts reason, not should be, not its advice to, not as it will be cute to, it must be interpreted otherwise. Because the author of the world and the author of the Torah are not two separate things. They are one and the same. So there cannot be contradictions. If we have a misunderstanding, it's mm-hmm. as a result of our misunderstanding. It's not as a result yeah. of there being two um, separate things. I'm just... I, what? I just... <laughs> I'm just sighing because wow, it's like, wow, I mean, I that. want to go into, you know, <laughs> 50 of the things that you mentioned. And I just, I, right. I know. It really exactly, is where do I, I start. Yeah. And I, I mean, also, like you know, of like, where I, do I start? So much to I think yeah. I get kind of frustrated personally, because I think that it is, it's just very unfortunate that people like Chacham Fa'ur are not so well known. And that, you know, of course, it's good that, they have become more well-known, but to take the case of Chacham Fa'ur, you know, he just recently passed away and now there's this resurgence and it's hard, I think, sometimes to just accept the fact that people achieve their notoriety posthumously. Like, that is, that is very frustrating. (laughs) Mm Tupac Shakur, Tupac Shakur said it beautifully. He said, you're (laughs) all going to care about me when I die. See, we so, can even quote Torah you know, and I think in the also, Torah context. I think too, you know it's I mean? like, <laughs> I think this is so no, compelling right. for me and I, and I know it's compelling for you too. And it's just kind of, I, I think that when you, th- there's a little bit of a process, I think, in, in delving into the work that you're talking about and the work that you're doing, which is that there's almost some grief involved with it, I think, because there's grief in recognizing like where the direction of Torah education has gone and how the the paradigm has shifted away from this um, you know traditional model, like you were saying. But with that comes this immense opportunity to revitalize, to rectify, to reclaim, like you know, as you've said. Um, and I'm just I'm glad that it's happening now. You know, I'm I think that now is the time. If if it couldn't have happened sooner, then I'm glad it's happening now. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's, it's very clear that it's, it's, I, 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 I'm very careful when I say, you know, it's kind of bringing back because there's nothing to bring back in the sense that there are communities around the world that have been following uh, the Masora. It's just, they've been very secluded or they haven't been in the mainstream or um, I think one of the issues has been also because this is a thrive mode Judaism, thrive mode as you've touched upon requires effort and because the vast majority of religion is pop religion and pop religion doesn't want to uh, you know dig into the weeds and and and, and try to gain knowledge of god through studying all these different things and, and, and and living your life according to these laws what's happened is that people like to have a cute pop version of religion they want to just take what they get in front of them, localized thinking. Um, they just want their kids to keep Shabbat and kosher. And that's a very survive mode mentality. But Jews are living in a thrive mode situation right now. And we need to go back to thrive mode Judaism. Have there been, as I said, communities around the world that have stayed in thrive mode? Yes. But what we're seeing now is thanks to the social media, thanks to different educational platforms, different you know, global initiatives, we're seeing these different clusters coming together and uh, slowly, slowly, slowly getting into the mainstream. Uh, and I would say we're seeing generally, even with, I think, the, the, the modern Orthodox 
uh, arrival on the scene. Uh, that's impacted a lot in a positive way in that thanks to modern orthodoxy, a lot of these sources have come to light because of course, modern orthodoxy's um, premise has been Torah Omada. So they've had to find the Hachamim who represent that Mesorah. The difference with us is that we haven't, we, we don't necessarily, there's no concoction or there's no, there's nothing we need to create here. It's something that's been, you know, we, we, we see it through from Chazal that they were, I mean, I always say the Talmud is the biggest um, uh, example, the greatest example of an integrationist approach. You've got Greek terms in there. You've got Greek phrases. You've got the different forms of medical knowledge and this philosophy and that idea and this idea. Geometry. You've got all these. It's, it's I mean, just just the just the discourse, almost the Platonic discourse between the Hachamim, between Chazal. That is something that comes. At Jenny, Professor Jenny Labenz has a fantastic book called Socratic Torah, and she outlines beautifully how you know the Talmud itself is. It's an integrationist document. It shows that our Hachamim they were responsive to the realities of their time. They were in touch with the realities of their time, and something that really. Um, should should make people think about how integrationist the hachamim were, is their acceptance of demonology. When we talk about Chazal, or when we read the subyot in the Gemara where Chazal are talking about demons and spirits, some believed it, some didn't believe it, regardless of that, we sometimes cringe as 2021 rationalists, if you like, of all oh, Chazal, they believe this stuff. It is the biggest badge of honor that Chazal believed those stuff. Why? Because that was the reality of the time. That was the science of the time. We didn't have demonology or spirits in the Torah. That in, 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 in the Babylonian milieu, demonology and spirits was the evolution of the time. It was the, 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 the theory of gravity of the time. It was the latest cutting-edge understanding of reality. Our hachamim, not all of them, but many of Chazal, believed these things, and that is the biggest testament that they were in tune with the understanding of reality of the time. So the, 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 the challenge for a lot of people who read those things is when they come from an understanding, as I said, with the Ashkenazi educational system of studying Talmud. And the Ashkenazi educational system teaches Talmud study as uncovering God's will. So essentially, when they read the writing, non-halachic writing of Chazal, it's as though they are reading God's will. Whereas how the Geonim, who were the students of the Talmud, you know, if we, if we want to understand Plato, how do we go to the students of Plato? If we want to understand, you know, uh, Aristotle, we go to the students of Aristotle. The Geonim were the students of the Talmud. And they did not see the Talmud as uncovering God's will. They saw the Talmud as an amalgamation of uh, you know, halachic legal determinations and conclusions and discussions uh, of, of a Bedin Agadol or a Sanhedrin. So we've got many tangents there, but the crux of what I'm trying to say here is that it's frustrating, yes, but it's very exciting. Why? Because it's reality, it's viability. And HaKadosh Baruch created the world in a way that viable ideas survive and non-viable ideas fade away. And at the end of the day, being in tune with reality is to be in tune with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And when we remember that the vast majority of Jewish history was of this integrationist approach in tune with reality, we just need to zoom out and we need to take confidence in the fact that we are in a survive mode that has been very, very recent in our time and, and things are changing. Rea reality hits us whether we like it or not, whether we choose for it to or not. So um, that's how God created the world and, and, and let's just get on the ride. Just another note about the, the survival mode. I think that a, another thing that needs to happen in order to get out of that is that leaders and educators need to lose this fear um, that if they teach certain ideas, that it will lead students on the wrong path. And I think that like a lot of what you're getting at is that with the proper context and with the proper foundation, that will not happen. And But it requires a certain level of confidence in leaders and in educators and to, for them to be deliberate in how they frame and how they educate um, so that these other 
ideas and concepts can then be incorporated and they can enrich Torah and they can help us better understand the world. But I, I do think that a lot of what inhibits, um, you know, this paradigm shift that you're talking about from happening is that fear that an integrationist approach will actually lead to um, a dismissal of Torah or an abandonment of Torah. And that that needs to end. I mean, that is, yeah. I think that holds us back. Absolutely, absolutely. We have to first of all acknowledge that there are toxins and we need to learn how to, um, uh, you know, avoid these toxins. Before one can delve into these things, they need to have a strong sense of self. And unfortunately, we do not have a strong sense of self. As a Jew, as an Israelite, we don't. We do not. No one understands the principles. Nobody is digging into the context of what it means to be a member of Israel. There are so many people who are stuck in the detail and the content without understanding and zooming out what is the context, what is the framework of being a member of Israel, mm -hmm. which is what Rabbi Sachs, who also recently passed, was fantastic at. He was able to zoom out and show what Israel is in relation to other nations. And until we have that sense of self, of what it means to be a Hebrew, then can we start filtering out other ideas. Today, vast majority of Jews, and I, it sounds very arrogant for me to say this, but I'm willing to take the risk, they think in a Greek way. They do not think in a Hebrew way. Their understanding of the world is, has been so influenced by a Greek way of thinking, which our Hachamim warned against, um, that they even study Hebrew texts through Greek eyes. And Hacham Faur, again, I mentioned him, he wrote a very important essay about this, studying Hebrew texts or studying Jewish texts, something like that, through Greek eyes. And we need to understand that, that even the way that we are looking at our religion is studied through this foreign uh, lens. So first and foremost, before our educators learn anything, or our students or our you know, brothers and sisters learn anything, they have to learn principles. What are the principles of our religion and our way of life and of our Torah? Once we understand those principles, we will have a filter to be able to determine what are toxins and what are not toxins. Mm -hmm. Someone who is not self-aware, uh, we know that just from psychology, it, it's, a, it's a disaster. They, they, they just, where do you start? Everything is a mishmash, everything is a mess. And I think that's where we are today. But even then, even once we've achieved self-awareness where every young Jewish boy and girl has a good framework and context of Torah, it is dangerous to study many things. But I'll quote Rabbi Norman Lam, again, another giant who lost, we lost last year. It's mm -hmm. unbelievable. We lost Hacham Faur. I know. We lost uh, Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz. We lost Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. We lost Rabbi Norman Lam, all in, you know, within 12 months and, of course, many others. And you, dedicate, you actually dedicate your second I book. I dedicated them at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. exactly. In Shemot, I, I dedicated it because they've impacted me so much. But uh, Rabbi Norman Lamb, he said beautifully about this point, any knowledge that can never be dangerous is never worth striving for. It's like anything else in life. Love, for example, is a great ideal, yet love can be extremely dangerous. Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't pretend like there, it isn't dangerous. It is. But if we really, be, it goes back to that first thing I said, if we really believe that the author of the Torah and the author of the world are one and the same, we have to go in with confidence and understand that contradictions may arise, but it's as a result of our finite understanding. And we need to toil and toil, have the right leaders and, and teachers to help us. And of course, uh, have a framework and context from those teachers. Um, to be able to kind of traverse this minefield. But we need to look at it more positively and maybe not look at it as a minefield, yeah. but look at it more as uh, an opportunity to enjoy the wisdom that God has bestowed upon humanity, which is why we have a baracha that I've used many a time when I've met a, a non-Jewish hacham, which is that, uh, you know, we, we, we bless the Lord for giving of his flesh and blood to uh, humankind. So we must try and, and take as much wisdom as we can uh, from as many people as we can within a filter and context and framework of Torah. 
but we cannot do that without self-awareness. So principles, we need principles to be taught as much mm-hmm. as possible. Definitely. Well, honestly, I think that, you know, you summed it up with such a positive message there at the end and such, you know, as we've been saying, a note of optimism. Um, I hope that all of this inspires everybody to check out your books because, you know, everything that we've been talking about is woven and threaded throughout. Um, and they're very rewarding and exciting to read. Um, you know, just before we end, you mentioned that you might not be writing the next installment <laughs> for Vaikra, but do you have any other um, projects like related to these books or related to, um, you know, this area of Jewish education in mind? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, um, we've, I mean, we've got this new educational program, uh, Educational House of Learning, uh, Beth Midrash, called the Habura. It is an online platform, um, a virtual and physical uh, platform, whereby we try to teach framework. We try to teach context. We have students from all over the world. Um, we start our membership mode in July. Uh, it's called the Habura, T-H-E-H-A-B-U-R-A. And really, the kind of things I'm talking about is what we're trying to address, where we're teaching students, young and old, male and female, the principles that will build that self-awareness and that context through which they can interact with the world around them confidently and all in, all for the sake of gaining knowledge of Matsui Rishon, primal existence, mm-hmm. the reality that is around us, which is what we happen to call God. Um, and, and that educational service, I think, will be part of a larger ecosystem please God, of schools, of yeshivot, of many different institutions that will help uh, manifest this reality-driven Masorah um, at the mainstream once again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. I just, I can only say that as somebody who has enjoyed many of the classes, I think that there is immense potential there and it's it's a super exciting enterprise and I'm very much looking forward to seeing it grow. Um Sina, it has been such a pleasure talking with you today. I think we probably could have talked for for three hours. I'm ready to go for another hour. Let's go. (laughs) But I know that it's getting late. for. We managed to actually work out an eight-hour time difference. So I know that it's getting later for you. But I wanted to just thank you so much for joining us and just, again, reiterate it was such a pleasure. Thank you. Really had a lot of fun talking with you. Looking forward to many more and uh, really appreciate the work you're doing, getting all these different important works out there. So thank you. And thanks to the network. Great. Thank you. So once again, I am McKenna Mezzestrano, and this was Sina Kahane on his new books, Ideas on Bereshit and Ideas on Shemot.